0: Morning, family. If you would turn over to John chapter 12, that's where we're going to be taking our lesson this morning as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. I took a break last week to talk about some important and exciting things as we move forward in the work of the church here. And if you weren't here for that, I encourage you to go online and, and uh, either watch or listen to that lesson so you can be uh, caught up on exactly what we're talking about. We finished John chapter 11 a couple of weeks ago, and moving into John chapter 12 right now, I just want to go back and look at a few verses at the end of chapter 11 that sets up where we're at in the timeline of John's gospel, and show you something interesting about the way that John puts his gospel, his account of Jesus' life together. And so at the end of John chapter 11, starting in verse 54, we read this, Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So, the Jewish leadership has made a decision, and they've come up with a plan. Jesus must die in order to preserve the peace in Israel and protect them against any hostility on behalf of the Romans. And so, Jesus is understanding all of this, and so for the time being, he goes and he puts himself in a place that's safer, it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, so we're coming up on another Passover. John records three Passovers in his gospel. So the ministry of Jesus, the public ministry, uh, lasts roughly a three-year time span. But here's what I want to show you about John's gospel. There are 21 chapters in John's gospel. We are moving from chapter 11 into chapter 12. We're, we're just over the halfway point in John's gospel, and already we are up to the final week of Jesus' life in his public ministry before his crucifixion, what we commonly recall, uh, call Holy Week. So I just want to show that to you, that out of 21 chapters in John's Gospel, here we are just starting chapter 12, and it's already the last week of Jesus' public ministry. He spends a lot of time focused in on that part of Jesus' Life And as we've talked about before, I want to continue to encourage you as you study John on your own, as you go home, and I hope you are, and you read over the things that we're talking about collectively together, I want to encourage you to read John's gospel alongside the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because I don't think John is offering a competing story of the life of Jesus. I think he's interacting with those other gospel accounts. He's familiar with them, and so he's offering a supplement to those gospel accounts that complements the stories that Matthew, Mark, and Luke already told. And so I just want to encourage you to think about some of those things. But here we are, the week leading up to the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection... Of Jesus, And a lot of what we're going to talk about as we move through this gospel is focused in on that final week. It says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover, and they kept looking for Jesus. There is this heightened anticipation. Okay, if he really is the Messiah, if he really is the Christ, then something has got to happen here because we see all of the opposition that's building up against him from the Jewish leaders. And so what's going to happen? What is he going to do? There's this anticipation building. It so says, they stood in the temple courts. They asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And so that's John's way of setting up the drama that follows in the week leading up to the death of And so we move into chapter 12, and this is where we take our story from this morning. It's a shorter passage, but it's so full. And so I want to do this. Let's start by just reading through the passage together. So John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read the first 11 verses of John chapter 12 together. John writes, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped her feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth roughly a year's wages." so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So we're still talking about the aftermath of what we found out in chapter 11 when Jesus calls dead Lazarus by name and brings him out of the tomb alive, showing that Jesus was in fact the resurrection and the life that he claimed to be. But the, the Jewish leaders who are in opposition to everything about Jesus' ministry are so confounded by all of this that they decide even Lazarus has to die. And just as an aside, something that's interesting, I think. Lazarus plays such an important role in the Gospel of John, and yet we don't have any of his talking recorded. There's nothing that Lazarus says that's recorded for us. I just find that very interesting, right? And yet such an important character. Okay, so... A few things I want to point out about this text. Number one is what Mary does. This humble act of service that endears her to Christians forever. This humble act of service where she takes this expensive perfume and anoints Jesus' feet with her hair. This account is recorded for us in Matthew and Mark as well. We'll talk about Mark's account in just a few minutes, but we're going to zero in on what John says here. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. How expensive was it? A year's wages. Right? This, is, this is not a, a cheap thing that she is doing here. This is not a leftover can of, box, of uh, Axe body spray. All right. This is something very pricey, very valuable. She understands the value of this, and she uses it purposely for this purpose. To anoint Jesus, to celebrate Jesus, to thank Jesus. Remember, they're, they're at this feast that's put on in Jesus' honor. The way for Lazarus' family, remember there's Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. A way for them to show Jesus how grateful they are for what they did for Lazarus and for their family. And so Jesus comes back down to the area of Jerusalem, putting himself at risk, comes back towards Jerusalem to the little town of Bethany so he can take part in this meal. And during that meal, Lazarus is reclined at table with Jesus. Martha is busy serving in her own way, preparing the meal. But Mary isn't. Mary is doing something different. She's anointing the feet of Jesus with her hair. We are, in this life, attracted to certain things we are attracted to power we are attracted to authority we are attracted to notoriety and attention we're entering into yet another tumultuous uh, season in our country where people are going to be pitted against each other in a vie for power who can overpower the other power party so that we can have our way in the future of this country We are used to the world working this way. And yet, in spite of that, we see Mary offering us something completely different, a different picture of life. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? This is a room filled with people who loved Jesus, people who devoted themselves to following Jesus. And yet, among all of that room, it's Mary whose example rises to the forefront. As she humbles herself in this act of service. But there's some criticism that's going to be coming her way. And you can imagine that happening whenever someone puts themselves out there in an act of great service. It's always drawing attention to themselves. And so the question becomes, well, are you doing that on purpose? Are you looking for the notoriety and attention? Is that what Mary is doing here? Is she just simply wanting to show off? Look at how much I love Jesus and show she makes herself the center of attention. You can imagine a sister like Martha accusing her of that. Anybody have a sibling who's prone to jealousy sometimes? And even in your best attention, they have a way of tearing you down? We don't like it when siblings get attention, right? Right? Now, I'm not accusing Martha of that, but you can see how it works in human relationships that she could be thinking that. Why isn't she in here helping me? She's just looking for attention again. But Jesus doesn't accuse Mary of that. She's going to come under fire. We'll talk about it in just a minute for the fact that she wasted this expensive perfume. What else could you have done with it? But Mary's motives are pure. And what she shows us is that discipleship really looks totally different from the way human life looks in the rest of the world. Those things we chase after in life are of no value in the kingdom. What is of value in the kingdom is humility and service. And Mary puts both of those on full display here. In Matthew chapter 18, there's a couple times in Matthew's gospel where Jesus' disciples are struggling with this. And Jesus uses these as teaching opportunities to help them look into the nature and the character of the kingdom that was to come. So, at that time, Matthew 18, some of his disciples come to Jesus and they ask him this question Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you can imagine a group of them coming and they're all hoping what? That he points the finger at them, right? Well, you are, obviously. Look at all the great things you've done in the kingdom. But he's not going to name the greatest in the kingdom. He's going to use this as an opportunity to help them understand something. He called a little child to him. And he placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it the person who can stand up here and deliver the most powerful sermon you've ever heard? Are they the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it the person who sacrifices the most in a way that draws attention to themselves? Is it the person who can wield the most authority in a church setting? No, it's the one who makes themselves like a child. Who humbles themselves like a child. Who takes on, as Jesus Jesus puts it, the lowly position of, of a child, And you see Mary here on the ground at Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair. She gets this. She has understood this. And so she's the one that we talk about in this story. Later on in Matthew chapter 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the sons of thunder, are doing what I suppose most moms would do. Looking out for the future of their children. And so Jesus, when your kingdom finally arrives, when you take the throne, can you make them your right and left hand men? Can you make sure that they're the ones in the highest positions of authority in your new kingdom? Another teaching opportunity, right? So Jesus called them together and said, he gathers his disciples together because they're mad at each other now. They're mad because they said that and they're probably mad because they asked him first when they all wanted to, right? So they're mad. So he gathers them together. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. This is not a kingdom that places authority above all else. This is not a kingdom that places rulership above all else. This is not a kingdom built on those who have and those who have not. That's not this kingdom. Not so with you he says instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your what does he say servant you want to be great learn how to serve whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many they had not seen all of that unfold yet so they didn't fully understand it but he's trying to get them to understand something about the nature of his kingdom I know you're used to living in a world dominated by these kinds of kingdoms, but my kingdom will be totally different from top to bottom. It's an inside-out way of thinking about the world and human relationships, and it is counter to anything you have ever seen before. And so stop asking those questions and learn to serve. Mary had learned to serve, and she's putting that on display for us in this story. Turn over, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. This is one of my favorite passages. I don't know that there's any other passage in Scripture that has been more formative for me and I think is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so if if this isn't a passage you're familiar with, I hope you will become more familiar with it. Underline it, outline it, color it, bookmark it, whatever you need to do. Make this one of those passages that you come back to over and over and over again and spend some time in. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, starting in verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. How much do we do in this world that is motivated by those two things right there? Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Not only do we engage in those things, but we live in a world that actively promotes those things. This is how you get ahead. Ahead of whom? Everybody else. The whole idea is for you to get ahead other people have to what? Fall behind, right? It's all about putting others beneath you. And in Christ, the whole thing is flipped upside down. In Christ, it's all about putting others above you. And so do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests Of others, That's a profoundly different way of thinking about life than the way the world offers us. And where do we draw that from, that idea? Well, listen to what he says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human form... And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross, even the most humiliating way there was to die. Jesus, who was equal with God, took on human flesh, became a servant, and died a humiliating death on our behalf. And in so doing, shows us a different way of living where others become central. And where self becomes last. Mary is putting this on display for us. She had gotten something. All of those times listening to Jesus teach his disciples. All of those intimate moments at meals like this. All of that time spent listening to him reorder the world. Something had gone off in Mary's mind and in her heart. And she got it in this moment. That a humble act of service is what she was called to do. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. I just want to say this. As you mature in your faith, there will come times in your walk with Christ where you get it, like Mary does, and you're willing to put yourself out there. And sometimes in those moments where the light bulb goes off and everything clicks, and you humble yourself and you put yourself out there and you serve. Sometimes, even in those moments, the people who should be your biggest supporters end up becoming your biggest critics. And it hurts when that happens. But take solace in the fact that in a room full of critics, Jesus sees what Mary's doing and he singles her out. We're not performing our faith, faith is not performative. And we don't do it so that we might gain accolades from other people, so that other people can applaud us and say, oh, look how faithful you are. We do it for one reason and for one reason only. We do it to be faithful to our Christ, to serve him. Mary's not concerned about what people think about what she's doing. She is showing her affection to her Savior. And he sees it. And he loves it. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? This is from Mark's account. Listen to what he says. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then I love this statement. She has done what she could. Listen, if you're thinking to yourself, I'm not one of those people who does great things in the kingdom. All Mary did was wipe the feet of Jesus. She did what she could. And I'm telling you that when you humble yourself and you act out of nothing more than love for your Savior, if you do what you can, Jesus will see it as a beautiful thing done to him. You are of value in this kingdom when you humble yourself and serve. The least among us becomes the greatest. And that's what happens here. She has done what she could. And truly, listen to what he says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Isn't that awesome? Jesus understands how profound what she's doing is in this moment, so profound that you can't preach the gospel without telling the story of humble Mary. How awesome is that? So a humble act of service. Let's talk a little bit about this perfume for a minute, though, shall we? Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. We talked about it would take the average worker a year to save up enough money to buy this ointment that she uses. She pours it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house, listen to this one statement, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I find that a very interesting statement, and John is doing something as an author here, that I think is, is brilliant. Josh is doing a great job in his class. If you're not a part of it Sunday morning, come and join us. He talk, walked us through some art today. right? To think about scripture as, as more than sometimes we usually do. There is art. There is beauty in scripture. That's not to take away the divine from it. Uh, in fact, just the opposite is true. It highlights the handiwork of God. The signature of God in scripture. But John is doing something here that's brilliant as an author. He's engaging us in a sense that we don't normally engage in when it comes to our faith. How many of you think about smell when it comes to faithfulness? Hmm? Okay, let's do a little exercise here. Do me a favor, just humor me for a minute. Close your eyes. Close your eyes to ask you a question. What do you smell? Now, Some of you are thinking, I'm not falling for that again. But seriously, what do you smell? Right? You don't really usually think about it. When your eyes are open, you're not usually th- you think about smell when it's very, very offensive or when it's very, very good. Right? But smell has this powerful way of connecting us to memories, doesn't it? Sometimes you smell something and immediately that nostalgic part of your brain fires up, doesn't it? You smell something and you think, oh, that takes me back to... Can you remember the way your grandparents' house smelled? Can you remember the favorite meal your mom used to make when you were a kid? Do you remember that smell? Right? There's certain things that these scents just embed themselves in our mind and they become so important for the way we connect to memories. And I think that's what John is doing here. He's inviting us to think about this in a holistic way, to think about it, 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 it awaken a sense that we don't normally think about, right? For me, one of the most powerful scents in the world is, I know it's going to sound weird, but it's wet earth and pine needles. And it takes me back to my favorite place in the world, which is northern Wisconsin, doing my favorite thing, which is fishing on some of those lakes up there in the cold, in the fall, when the leaves have fallen and the earth is damp and you get the fresh smell of pine in the air. If I catch a whiff of that, oh man, I am transported back to that place instantly. And you can almost see John somewhere on his own, maybe in a candlelit setting, writing furiously the words of this gospel passionately, and all of a sudden, he remembers the smell in that moment. And he records it for us. Now, unfortunately, the Bible is not a scratch-and-sniff book. You can't smell it, right? But it does make you think about the moment. And this particular scent that Mary is using... I imagine that whenever John came across it again for the rest of his life, he was transported back to that moment in a connection to the person of Jesus. Do you have someone you love or have loved in your life, maybe someone you've lost, that always wore the same perfume, always wore the same cologne or aftershave, and when you smell it on someone else, what happens? You think of that person, right? I think that's what John is doing Here, he's remembering that scent, and it's connecting him back to the person of Jesus because perfume, smells, scent, it has this way of bringing us into intimacy with another person. The people we love have smells, don't they? I can close my eyes and smell my daughter's hair. Now, what is it? You know, it's the the shampoo that we've used on her since she was little. But that's her. That's her head. That's her smell. That's my baby girl's head. Right? It's this intimate connection I have with her. Go to the Song of Solomon. Everybody gets nervous when you talk about the Song of Solomon, I know. All right, But right away in the first chapter, as we're drawn into the intimacy that unfolds in these pages, scent is important. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. While the king was on his couch, my nard, same fragrance that Mary's using here. Gave forth its fragrance. Mary is connecting herself to Jesus in an intimate way. Not in an inappropriate way, by the way. But in an intimate way with the person of Jesus. She has understood something about who Jesus is in this moment. Back in chapter 11, her sister Martha made a great statement of faith. This is Mary making a great statement of faith. She's just not using words to do it. She's illustrating it with this action. This costly perfume anointing the body of Jesus. And the scent fills the room, connecting everyone in that room to this moment that will be locked in their minds forever. And again, Jesus says here, after they criticize her for wasting this perfume, think of what you could have done with it. You could have sold it and gathered all this money and given it to the poor, even though Judas didn't really care about the poor point is, like wasn't there a more appropriate way to use this really expensive perfume? And Jesus' answer is a resounding no. This is the most appropriate way to use this. Leave her alone, Jesus replies, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. She was saving this for his burial. She's using it now. And I don't know how much Mary understood, but Jesus is certainly inviting us into the idea and his audience at the time that that time is now something is changing something's about to unfold something's about to happen and so there's no more appropriate time than now to use this expensive perfume and then he makes this statement you will always have the poor among you people have used this forever to justify neglecting the poor you are reading this backwards if that's what you get out of this text Jesus is not saying don't worry about the poor they'll always be around Yes, the poor will always be around, therefore always concern yourselves with the poor. Jesus is not neglecting the poor or asking us to here. He's simply saying, yes, you could use that for the poor, but they'll still be here tomorrow. You will not always have me. Now, we always have Christ, don't we? He is always present in our lives, but physically, the way that they were used to engaging in Jesus, that's coming to an end quickly. Quickly. They're a week away from watching this man they're eating with now hang on a cross and die in front of them. They're a week away from that moment and he's preparing them for that and so he's simply saying there's nothing more appropriate she could have done with that than anoint my body now preparing me for what's about to happen. Mary seems to get something that Judas certainly did not. Same text, but let's move on to a different thought here and talk about anointing for a moment. This is the last thing I want to talk about this morning. So, Jesus' response, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. What do you use expensive perfumes like this for? Well, sometimes it was used to anoint the bodies of those who had died so that when you put the body in the tomb, the smell wouldn't overpower the tomb. Remember, at the time, they were buried in family tombs and people would go into those tombs as the bodies." were decaying, and so this is a a way to make that process and that experience mm, less gross. And so, she's anointing his body for burial. There's an anointing process happening. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I want us to think about anointing for just a moment, and bear with me. I hope I can connect this in a way that makes sense. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem... As royalty. We're going to talk about that in our next lessons. And as he does so, the people of Jerusalem are shouting out, Hosanna, son of, anybody remember? David. Why? Because that terminology, son of David, was important to them. That's who Messiah was. A fulfillment of the promise made to David that from David's lineage would come a son who would establish a kingdom that would last forever. We talk about Jesus as Messiah or Christ in Greek, you know what those terms mean? They mean anointed one. Referring back to the anointing process that happened to the kings. When David became king, just like Saul before him, he was anointed and the process of anointing him is what set God's seal on him and made him ruler of God's people. Now this happens a couple different times during David's life. First is back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul has disobeyed God as he conquered the Amalekites. And God has told him, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. And so he sends Samuel to find the next king after Saul. But it's David, and David is just a boy. So we read this. Well, he goes to Jesse's household, and Jesse brings seven of his children in front of him, and none of them are it. And God is continually reminding Samuel, don't pay attention to the way he looks. I'm not worried about somebody who looks like a king. got somebody else in mind. And finally, Samuel says, isn't there anybody left? Oh yeah, my youngest. Let me go get him. So he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the one. This is my future king. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. There's the anointing, but then look at what follows, because this is important. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This isn't just anointing as kind of a ceremonial process that signified who the next ruler was. God is at work in this anointing. David is anointed with oil, and what happens? God's Spirit rushes upon him. And from that moment forward, David was set apart because the spirit of God was at work in David's life. And this is in contrast to Saul. If you remember that story, what happens to Saul from this point forward? There's an evil spirit sent to torment Saul. And as Saul slowly loses his mind and becomes a worse and worse king, David rises in honor and becomes well-loved by his people for delivering the people in victory over and over again. Several times... During that scene, as it unfolds, David is given an opportunity to take the kingdom from Saul and make it his own. But he refuses to do so. And the reason he refuses to do so is he says, it is not up to me to rise my hand up against the Lord's anointed. God has anointed Saul. And until God takes that anointing away, I'm just waiting in the wings. David understood something special about that. What happens, though, eventually, in battle against the Philistines, both Saul and his son Jonathan, whom David loved dearly, are killed in battle. David gets word of this, and David is anointed again, but this time, he finally becomes king, but only of the tribe of Judah. Because one of Saul's other sons is anointed king over Israel. And so there's this battle taking place, this war between David's household and Saul's household. And it's not until that other son of David is murdered in his sleep by some zealots that the children of Israel now come, all the tribes together, and tell David, we want you to be king and anoint him as king. So this is the second time David is fully anointed. This happens in 2 Samuel 5, verses 1-3. through it says Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. Listen, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now he is ruling as God intended, as God's anointed king over all the tribes together. So he's anointed in private when he's a young man. He's anointed in public now and actually takes on the crown at this moment here. I want to show you something. In Jesus fulfilling the promise that God would send his anointed one, the Messiah, a descendant of David, to become that king who would usher in a new kingdom that would never end. Jesus is also anointed twice. Once at his baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. At the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, at his baptism, he is anointed with the Spirit, like David was, as a young man. God sets his Spirit on Jesus, just like he did David, as a sign of who he would become. But this is the beginning of his ministry. This is at the end of Matthew chapter 3, the very next passage, that same Spirit leads Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted, and it's after that that he begins his public ministry. But just anointing in private doesn't make you king. You have to be anointed like David was, as king. When does that happen in Jesus' life? And I would suggest to you it happens here. We think about Holy Week. We think about the passion of Christ. We think about all the events leading up to his death, from from this event and Palm Sunday forward to the crucifixion. We think about it as this tragedy that unfolds, and in many senses it is. But this is also a coronation. Jesus is becoming king in these moments. People don't understand that. But in Mary's anointing of Jesus with oil, she is anointing him as Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before burial or in preparation for burial. But listen, this is the thing about Jesus and it goes back to that upside down, inside out kingdom we're talking about. At Jesus' death he became king. We're going to talk about this more, but what happens? What does Pilate do with Jesus? What do the the guards do as they're mocking him? They put a what? Crown of thorns on his head. And they put a purple robe on his body. And what hung over him on the cross? This is Jesus what? King of the Jews. Look, they thought they were mocking him there. But what they meant as mocking, God is using as a signal. No, this is the King of the Jews. This is a coronation. And it begins as his anointing now at the beginning of this week as these events unfold. Jesus would become king. How do people become kings? By defeating their enemies, right? How did Jesus become king? By dying for his enemies. This is a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. And the things we're going to see as this week unfolds, as we journey throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, need to inform us of the kind of disciples that we need to be. If we miss this, we miss everything. If we don't understand that the kingdom was built by a God who died for those he came to save, then we understand nothing about the nature of the kingdom. If we don't understand that the kingdom is made up of humble servants who would wipe feet with their hair, then we don't understand anything about the nature of the kingdom. Please, please engage your minds and your hearts fully in the rest of this study. It will challenge us to our core and reshape us as human beings if we allow it to. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Where is Jesus now, by the way? Sitting at the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory and majesty. This is Jesus becoming king. And whether Mary fully understood it or not, she is an active participant in this coronation process when the new king is anointed. And let's end with this. Philippians chapter 2, let's go back to where we left off. I read verses 1 through 8. Establishing the idea that we, like Christ, should put others before ourselves. But as a result of Christ's humility and his death, this is what Paul says, starting in verse 9 of Philippians 2. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. We are here this morning to acknowledge that reality. That Jesus has been exalted. That his name is above every other name. And that all of our knees our bowing before the name of him this morning. And as we bring this lesson to a close and we gather around to sing one more song, I invite you to set your mind on the cross and on the empty tomb. As we get ready to take communion together, we think about the sacrifice that he made and how in humble service he reshapes everything about the world and what we understand our role to be in this world with that the lesson is yours let's stand and sing if there's any way we can serve you please let us know by coming forward now let's stand and sing